to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chung. Hey everyone, I hope your week is going well. I just got back from Art Basel in Basel, Switzerland. If you don't know, Art Basel is sort of one of the bigger, if not biggest, art fairs in the world, I think. So much money goes through this fair. I think someone told me that if galleries aren't making money here, they're probably not making it anywhere else. Someone else also told me like David Zwerner made something like $60 million in the first two days. So yeah, the, the amount of money there is sort of crazy. People watching and seeing certain people wearing outfits that were worth more money than my entire bank account. Um, but I was able to get some free VIP tickets from a special friend. And I got to stay with an artist that I knew from grad school, Felipe Casablanco. Shout out to him. Felipe graduated, I think, two years before I came or a year before I came to Carnegie Mellon. But I've said before that the art world is small and the art community is small and we overlapped many times. But otherwise, Spazo was pretty expensive. Something like a simple espresso starts out at around $5 and everything kind of scales up from there. It's very easy to spend something like 30 to 50 equivalent dollars or francs on a really simple meal. But luckily, I met up with a few people. Uh, I've been working for this artist, Ming Wong, and he had a few friends from Singapore that he knew and he hooked me up with. And so I hung out with them a lot and we kind of went through the different galleries and talked to different artists and curators. And um, it was fascinating to watch. And I also cooked a lot of Chinese food with them in their apartments. And so it was a whole interesting thing. The whole art fair was a fascinating spectacle to watch. I was talking to Felipe and he mentioned that it's funny to think about all the different reasons we as artists wanted or got into art as children or as adults. And when you look at the art fair, none of those reasons really exist in that environment anymore, which is sort of a depressing thought to think about. But I had to take a break from all that. And I took a day trip to Lucerne, which is about an hour away from Basel. I took a gondola to the top of Mount Pilatus, which was about, I think, 7,000 feet or 2,000 meters high and got some fresh air and I came back to Berlin last week, and I'm soon heading off to Venice, where I'm checking out the Venice Biennale. I'm meeting up with Jose Diaz, and we'll be, I guess, looking at a lot of arts, drinking some cheap espresso, and eating probably like squid pasta or something like that. A few quick announcements before we start. I want to give a quick shout out to Ali Ricarte and Chelsea Dulaney. They are two new monthly Patreon subscribers. Actually, they both subscribed right before... I released a previous episode with Soho, but I didn't have enough time before I left Basel to include that in the intro. So here's my belated thanks to both of you. And if you, as a listener, feel so inspired to help out with the show, you can also contribute to my Patreon for only $2 a month, which is less than half the cost of a Swiss espresso. And if not that, you can also share Seeing Color with friends and family. Spread the word, please. Share this idea of expanding the dialogue within the arts. And if that's too much work, you can also rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts, ideally five stars. And of course, if you don't have the time or resources for either, that's okay too. Just sit back and enjoy the show. 
I made this show not for the money, but to have discussions I found lacking in the arts. And I just want to share that with everyone. So, so anyway, on to the show. For today, I'm speaking with Eugenia Song. Eugenia was born in London, but she primarily grew up in South Korea and the U.S. She received her BFA at Cornell University, which is where I first met Eugenia, and she recently completed her MFA from Hunter College. I remember seeing Eugenia's early paintings as an undergrad, and I can say that her more recent work has progressed in a wonderfully different direction. She was visiting Pittsburgh last summer, and I met up with Eugenia for lunch. In our conversation, Eugenia talks about dealing with perceived notions attached to being an Asian woman, especially in the arts, working through the different manifestations of the Chinese and Korean diaspora, studying in the U.S., and adopting various strategies to fitting in a Western society. And with that, I hope you enjoyed this. Because I'm more sensitive. Yeah. Yeah. You ready? I think so. Yeah. Um, what are you going to start with? Uh, I guess I'll introduce you. So right now I'm speaking to Eugenia, Eugenia Song. And I first met Eugenia in undergrads. Mm -hmm. Actually, I, I, I think the exact moment that I have my memory is we were studying together for an art history class. Oh, I don't know. If I was thinking the painting class. Which painting class? I, I forgot. Think, I oh, forgot. Painting three. Ah, uh, was with Deborah someone? Deborah, uh, what's Deborah's name? But I was a year above you, so yeah. I, I wouldn't have. I don't think. No, I I skipped a painting one. Oh, okay. Yeah. But I think the first time I knew you was, was in the art history class. Yeah, because we were studying together with Eugen. Remember that Chinese painting or Japanese painting art history, which like, <laughs> yes. everything looked the same, and we were all like, "This is so because like yeah. it's just hard because they all look the same." Right. Yeah. And I don't think I learned more about Buddhism than <laughs> than that class. Um, so yeah, so Eugenia is a painter. Mm -hmm. She um, she just got her MFA from Hunter, and I guess why don't you start off with start off with like I guess tell us a little bit about your work, what you do. Mm -hmm. Um, so I make um, paintings, kind of uh, challenging the idea of institution of painting and um, looking at painting from the Asian artist perspective. We were talking a little bit about it earlier, but uh, painting is very Western medium and painting on canvas is also a very Western medium that Asian artists have started investigating only like a century ago. And um, I'm trying to find the authorship in it and by kind of uh, finding my lineage through Korean monochromatic painting movement, um, which is called Danseka. Uh, How do you spell that? D-A-N-S-A-E-K-H-W-A. Okay. Yeah. So it means literally monochromatic paintings. Okay. And that started in the maybe mid-60s through the 70s. And I view it as first time when Korean painters were uh, really digested the medium of oil paint on canvas and then made something their own. And I'm trying to find my identity as a painter through that lineage. Yeah. And yeah. so how did you come across that? I came across that during my master's. So it wasn't, oh, so you didn't, it was recent then? It was very recent. Yeah. It was very recent. I was aware of them. Also, if I go a little bit into Tansoka's history, they were the first kind of modern painting movement in Korea. And it was recognized 
in Western society only maybe like five years ago because they were kind of overshadowed by the minimalism. And in the West, they've been they've always been viewed as kind of like a duration of minimalism in Asia mm-hmm. until I think it was 2015 in Venice Biennale. They, Korea had a whole exhibition about Danseka and um, I didn't know that. Yeah, and then they. I was I was at that. Oh Venice, really? You know, yeah. I don't remember that yeah. show. Um, yeah, I think it was 2015. Yeah. yeah. And uh, then they started getting more recognition because they realized this was kind of like their own way of investigating painting. And yeah. the canvas was kind of started to be used uh, amongst painters in Korea but around like 1920s. And back then, the paint was very expensive, oil paint was very expensive and canvas was hard to get. And they used to paint on burlaps or like mixing oil paint with cement or sand to make them like just expand the material to use them. And That's so a lot of ruined brushes to mix. It yeah. So a lot of their um, danseka is very minimal, too. But a lot of them has to do with this kind of distilled action, like one move on a canvas, mm. like pushing the material through the burlap right, or right. scraping the material, things like that. Yeah. So and I think it kind of captures the laborious aspects of Asian culture or their kind of uh, work ethics and things like that. And very Zen. Yeah, very Zen. And it's a a lot about like internalizing what's learned on the outside Mm -hmm. into one distilled movement. And I view that as something that I could cling on to as a painter, because when I was making painting, I I was trained academically since I was a very little kid. I went to art school in Korea. If I go a little bit into my history. I was born in London and I moved to Korea when I was three. What citizenship and, do you have? Hmm? What citizenship? I am dual citizens of Korea and America at the moment. And if I want to... You don't get a... You didn't get a British... No, I have something similar to like a permanent residence. Uh, so if I go if i move there permanently and apply for citizenship they'll give it to me okay. uh, because i was born there but i don't have a citizenship at the moment right so yeah so i was born in london moved to korea when i was three and then lived there until i was 16 and moved to america when i was 16 and uh, in korea it's kind of interesting story but i was i went to i was i'm only child and when i first started school it terrified me that i was like put into these like massive group of kids. Um, I was used to being surrounded by adults and me being the only kid. I didn't have a lot of like kids around me growing up. Like kid friends. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. kid friends. So um, it terrified me. So my parents sent me to very small school. And when I was going to moving on to middle school in Korea, every middle school in Korea is standardized. And to me, it was kind of like this scary place where it was at the time it was okay for uh, teachers to hit students. And mm-hmm. um, to me, it was a kind of like a kind of like a military experience. Or, yeah. and, and then um, and then I learned about this art school, which was like only liberal school in Korea. What was the name of that? Uh, Yewon Hakkyo. Okay. Yeah. So and then in, in short, they would call them Yejung. Um, and to go there, I had to train academically because they were auditioning students to for admissions. 
and like train art academic yeah art、mm. academically like drawing still life drawing figures painting figures and painting、mm. so I would spend eight to twelve hours a day as like a twelve year old kid to practice on these drawings、wow. and watercolors and acrylic painting、mm-hmm. um, and I did that for many years in Korea throughout those middle school and and when I Uh, started tenth grade. My my parents moved to、uh, United States, and I decided to kind of pursue art here. So it was interesting because when I wanted to go to the school, my parents were like, "So you want to go to the art school? Then what do you want to do? Like piano or like violin or art? Or what do you want to do?" And I was like,、um, "I was doing. I was playing piano since I was a kid, but I was like, I can't." Practice piano for ten hours a day, but I don't mind.、Draw. Yeah, I can draw and paint for ten、yeah. hours a day or more.、It、doesn't、um, that would make me happy? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I think I knew I wanted to be an artist, and then、uh, when I when I came to United States, I was technically skilled, and that's the only thing I knew how to do. And I didn't know how to make abstract painting. I didn't know how to think about painting critically, and that was the biggest challenge that I had. And throughout my graduate school, I was still finding that identity.、Um, really? And, yeah, because I never felt like what I was making was really mine. It、mm. was something I had interested in, and I was working a lot about the idea of like capitalism and、uh, popular culture, and where you did、um, those realistic paintings. Yeah, it's realistic of, paintings,、um, and then candies and. Things、yeah. that you would consume,、mm-hmm. yeah, and that was something I enjoyed doing. So that was something I was interested in. It didn't really feel like mine.、Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I started grad school, it was both me trying to figure it out and constantly being put in a box as an Asian American、mm-hmm. that I have to work with my identity. I have to show my ethnicity through my work and things like that. And at the end, it kind of. Made me make works about identity, but it kind of gave me an opportunity to think about. So, where is my position as an artist, and、yeah. where is my position as a painter,、right. and what I can cling onto as mine?、Right. And that's where I found Tanseka. And then it was about the、uh, same time when Tanseka was getting more recognition.、Mm. And through the Venice Biennale, they got they were understood that it wasn't an iteration of minimalism, but they were actually all, also a lot of Tanseka was. Had a、um, political nuance to it because what was, What was that? Because they were under a dictatorship at the time, and they weren't allowed to make like a propaganda or a political images.、Right. So they were kind of talking about their frustration through this kind of like the still movement, like more minimalistic、uh, paintings, and so it. Kind of came into light、um, in around like 2015, and now all the blue chip art,、uh, galleries are representing、um, one of the dancer artists. Like、mm. David Zorner represents one, Pace represents the,、uh, Liu Fan, yeah, and those, like yeah, yeah. Lima Mappin and White Cube. So, and and I saw them as kind of like an opportunity for me to have. Uh, say have authorship in because, as a painter because there aren't any younger contemporary artists doing that. Is that why or I not that I know of, not that I know of, and I was just、um, because well, uh, painting has a longest history, which comes with a baggage.、Mm-hmm. So a lot of as as I study painting more and more, it's about codes. 
And it's about what's happened before, and it's about uh, what other people's done. The symbols of everything yeah. that's done before. Yeah, the signifiers, mm-hmm. and that was important. So for me to be able to talk about my position as an Asian artist, yeah, I really appreciated that Tan Sekwa had its um, own history, and they've right. been through this process already. Right. And that's something I could like start from yeah yeah so now i'm working more about kind of like the realm of painting and um, i would like deconstruct the paintings or um, i'm using this kind of silicone instead of oil or acrylic paint to kind of have this physicality of the paint but i would treat silicone like a paint and or i would paint with my hands right and things like that and so was the 2015, That was that the moment you also discovered Danzikwa? Uh, yeah, um, I knew of them a little bit, but I was never really keen on them before until I knew the history of it. Yeah. Um, and then I read more about it, learned more about it, and it kind of aligned with my interests because I was also getting tired of being singled out as an Asian artist uh, amongst other students when I was an MFA. And um, like, how would that play out? Uh, I think I channeled my anger into <laughs> my work uh, in a very productive yeah, way. Yeah, that's because, a positive way of using. Yeah, anger. because I was getting really angry, and then when I when I submitted my very first rough draft of my thesis to my advisor, yeah. she was like, "Oh my god, I didn't know you had so much anger in you." And all the reactions <laughs> yeah, would be like feelings. that. They, yeah, that, that everyone <laughs> would. I had thought that I didn't have this feeling in me because I was just like, uh, I guess, polite Asian, proper student. Yeah. You know? um, and so I, I would be, uh, this is all very subtle, but when I started school, um, people didn't seem to think of me as an interesting person. And when I started writing and talking about all these frustration of being singled out as like a, um, stereotypical Asian girl, quiet, quiet yeah, Asian girl. quiet, polite, mm-hmm. um, she'll a hard worker and she'll do, she'll never say no. Yeah, and submissive. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> dismissive. And I think the first work I made was a bunch of yellow balloons hmm. and I put them on the floor. I filled them into the crit room and, um, painted yellow balloons no just yellow balloons oh physically yeah. Yeah, physically oh, okay. yellow balloons right. um and i just wanted to see how much of a connection people would make yeah from the yellow balloons to um asian culture yeah. and then and one balloon on the corner like next to the entrance had a face it was i drew like a, with a sharpie i okay. drew like a very animated asian eyes okay the balloons. Yeah. yeah and then none of the balloons had faces on it okay. so like people flooded into the room and then it started kicking around some of them popped the balloons stepping on them and then when they turned around and then they saw this like one face like balloon with a face next to the entrance they uh, immediately realized these were asian heads that they were like popping and stepping on and kicking around Mm, and i like like that yeah i i really enjoyed it it was kind of like a cute maybe 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 a little one-liner but um that was like a really good start for me to um, one-liner is okay there's Artist whose entire career is a one-liner. <laughs> yeah, true, true. Yeah, but I had a lot of fun. Um, and some of the some of the people in the room felt really bad that they popped the balloons mm-hmm. and kicking them around, and, um, realizing there were heads. Yeah. And a lot of times, so I started using this color yellow as a kind of symbol of Asian, and it's 
contro- the fire of our yeah and it's it's controversial because it's a color that we're labeled with but mm-hmm. not a lot of people actually make the connection so because our color skin color isn't actually yellow right <laughs> right like yeah. like yeah so yeah so i started using i used to make a very colorful paintings but now it's almost monochromatic to like fleshy tone to mm-hmm. yellow and then a lot of times uh i use fleshy tones from like actual asian skin like part of my body or like part of my friend's body or things like that i would right, try right. to like re- replicate the color and then yeah. use that color in my work and things like that um i i, I don't know like where i'm just i'm just flowing no away. no no it's great it's great um so would you say how so how so would you say you didn't enjoy your experience at Hunter? Or? I did. I did. But yeah, first year wasn't that much fun for me. And then and another move I made was I volunteered myself to be a student representative uh-huh. and worked really vigorously through through that to kind of gain my footing um, at the Hunter community. And it worked for me too. But it also backfired in some aspects because they kind of saw me as a... Uh, figure of authority or mm. saw me as this kind of like a rule imposer and you had um, to overcompensate right and, and right as most people <laughs> who are minorities right. have to do yeah so that kind of frustration um led me to think about my work in terms of a korean painter and yeah. um trying to see what other korean painters have done and what a lot of korean painters are doing yeah yeah um and it just felt natural to me to kind of cling on to the Tatsekwa right. and find my my basically vocabularies from them. Right, you know, right, To right. create my own own poem or something. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. What was the environment of Hunter like? I've heard so many stories because I feel like so many people go through Hunter. Right. But And then it, also Hunter changed studios, right? It used to be... Mm-hmm. I forgot where it was before, but it moved to Tribeca in a completely new studio. Yeah, it used to studio. be on 41st Street in a big warehouse building. Yeah. And we moved to Tribeca into a very, very commercial building. But being a hunter was great because it gives you the access to the New York City life. And you can be... It doesn't feel completely like uh, you're you're disconnected from the world and you're in this MFA world. You always have a foot in the outside and um, yeah. one foot in the in the school. I felt and, disconnected from the yeah. world being in Pittsburgh. Yeah, sometimes. I mean sometimes sometimes people want that when they're doing MFA, yeah, yeah, yeah. and sometimes they want to be in the city. And, There's no right or wrong answer. Yeah, but being a hunter definitely gave me a huge community in New York City. And mm. even after after I finished school, like I see hunter people everywhere. Yeah. And it really helps with like looking for studios, getting jobs or getting shows, meeting people and yeah, things like yeah. that. So it's good to like have a community in New York City, especially like it's so hard to meet people when you're outside of school, but you have this kind of like a we call it hunter mafia. <laughs> really, that's what they call the hunter mafia. I think outsiders call them call them like call us oh, hunter mafia because okay. they're like everywhere, especially like. If you go to like these little galleries in Bushwick, you'll you'll find some. Because your class is so huge, right? Each class is like... Each class isn't that big. Each class is, I think, about 40, 45 students. And there's um, three years, though. That's like that's 120 years. So, yeah, total. that's... Yeah, so it's 120 My class total. was 18. Wow. All three years. Wow. Very small. 
Yeah. yeah. So Hunter is huge, and yeah, sometimes you don't get to know everyone in the program. If you're like far along, and if you're doing thesis, you wouldn't know a lot of like first years. And are there crits with all 120 people? Um, there are uh, well, you do crits in the classes, which is like seminars are they're like 12 to like 16 okay. students, and in the second year they do go through the mid program where. They evaluate um, your progress and in one setting. So you will display your work in one crit room and all the full-time faculty will be critiquing and yeah. all entire student body is invited to watch them and uh, maybe even to participate now. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's kind of like a midway checkpoint right. um, for students. And seminars are usually mixed. There are like... Uh, seminars that are heavier with the first year students right, but right. they're all mixed and sometimes it's more by discipline sometimes it's more by topics right 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 like hmm. one thing that i was thinking about when you mentioned that all of a sudden all these blue chip artists are interested in this movement i was like well is this would you say because all those galleries are owned by white people that there's a certain fetishization that's happening only because it was just recently existing in the Venice Biennale? Um, or how, sure. how are they viewing it? So that's what I'm curious about. Uh, I'm curious too. But I'm not exactly sure since when they started um, representing these artists, but they're definitely having more shows and sometimes like concurrent shows. So they like uh, Lima Mop and David Werner would do like the same like yeah. show at the same time and things like that. Sometimes coincidentally, but I see more of their presence. And I think maybe... I'm not sure, but maybe it's it depends on what collectors are looking for too. Probably. So how do yeah. how do you think people receive your version of it? What has that been like? It's been it's been um, interesting. Cause, yeah, uh, yeah. Because I during my thesis show some people who people who know of Danseka reads it a little differently than the people who hasn't seen it. Of, of course, course. Yeah. yeah. So that kind of um, discrepancy was interesting to me, like how much my work was received um, from the audience point of view, right. and thinking about how much I could expand from there or go from there right. it gives me a kind of good idea of like uh, uh when i'm making a new work how much people will understand how much would be a mystery right um and yeah i don't know if that answers your question I don't, I, yeah i just it just because it's, well, i was just curious because it's so history specific right yeah and so like how does how you view it like you were saying depends on how much prior knowledge you had of mm -hmm. it Right. And so mm -hmm. in that sense, I guess, how would you want the audience to view it as someone who doesn't know that history? Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. I think that's when other things come into play, like the color that I'm mm -hmm. using is Asian skin tone and the yellow. And I say yellow is kind of controversial, but uh, sometimes I think half the people make the connection to the Asian culture and half the people doesn't make the connection. Yeah. And sometimes they think about how yellow is a color of like urgency and yellow is a color of like sunshine or light. And and I like all those comments in my work too, because yeah. uh, they're always. Although the uh, 
uh, investigation of Tansekwa and then painting as a medium is the main thing I'm doing as an Asian artist. All these little parts are part of my work too. And I don't think knowing the history necessarily make a difference in looking at it in a way um, because I think a lot of the artwork, I think it would be too dry if the artwork completely relied mm. on history. Mm-hmm. And and I think art always has a visceral aspect to it and it needs to be felt. And yeah. um, I think I, there is still a lot of things that could be felt through the physicality of the paint or yeah. the way it's painted or the yeah. color and the, all the formal things that I have. I mean, I, I would agree. I think, I mean, when I think about my own videos, the thing that I always think about first when I'm shooting video is like, does this shot even look good? Right. You know, like that's sort of the impetus of my editing process is mm-hmm. I always, I've always cut my shots into categories of like, is this, is this visually usable or not? Right. Right. Even before I know what the video is about, which mm-hmm. is, I guess, some, which can me sound strange a little, but yeah, no, I mean, I think for, I think we forget sometimes how, as an artist, we're a visual medium, right? Right. Yeah, it is a visual medium, and and I was on the way to Pittsburgh. We're looking, uh, we're listening to NPR, and then um, in this show, someone had to describe Kusama, like that she's a famous artist. Yeah, yeah. And we're just like laughing about it, how like majority of public doesn't really know who she is, or like has very little knowledge about contemporary art. Right. And. And and a lot of people start by, I like this, I don't like this. And I think that's completely fine. Right. And I think looking at art starts from how the viewer you know, um, feels about the artwork. Right, and, right. And from that, they could, the more you look at it or the more things you're looking at, you learn a little bit from each work and, and, yeah. and can establish some kind of narrative. And... Yeah, so I think art shouldn't always be about people who understand it, you know, and um, could also communicate with the general public too. Right, right. Although the only issue I've come across is art can also be very austere yes. and seeped in its own history to the point where mm-hmm. as a viewer, if you're not knowledgeable of that history, mm-hmm. you don't even know what to think of it. Right. You know, and that can be at times difficult. hmm um, and I think every artist has been thought have thought has thought about it and struggled right. with how to deal with that. Yeah, you know. Yeah. And I think about that with like my videos take time to watch. Right. You know. Yeah. <laughs> and like yeah, that that's is, that's the biggest challenge with videos. I think um, having the audience in front of it and and through the duration of the video. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I do think about and I. I My favorite moment when people see my painting is when an Asian person comes up to me and be like, I totally get it. Mm -hmm. And that happens quite often. Yeah. And that gives me that give me great pleasure. But also at the same time, I feel like I'm doing something right because like the the person who is looking, you know, like um, the person who shares a lot of cultural histories with me, if that viewer can understand what I'm doing, right. maybe I'm doing something right about right, it. Right. You know, even if the outsiders can't really understand it. Right. And that's that's the racism too. Like yeah. inside and outside is completely different. You know, yeah. like what do you understand from the inside and the, from the perspective of 
Asian American to uh, the rest of the world. Right. You know, um, like you were talking about earlier about how that idea that Western society oftentimes thinks external or ex- uh, ex- thinks externally about the world, mm-hmm. and Asia, I guess uh, Eastern societies mm-hmm. more often think about things internally. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, think about how many therapists Americans see and how little therapists uh, exist in Asia. Yeah, you know? yeah. Like in, in Western culture, like knowing your problem, understanding your problem, externalizing your problem, being able to talk about it is, uh, is a value. But in Asian society, it may, it may seem like a respectful thing on the surface, but they like to internalize a problem. Yeah. And they... And putting it out there puts you in a weak spot, actually. Yeah. yeah. Because you, you're more vulnerable. Showing face. Yeah, exactly. So it's completely different how they uh, how people perceive the world. Yeah. And I think artwork is the same. Like, yeah. Um, it could be different how they perceive, depends on the, what perspective they're coming from. Right, right, yeah. right. And in that sense, you know who you're you know who your audience is. Yes. Right. Yeah. For you at least. Well, I, or or at least you know who, which audience is responding well to mm-hmm. your work. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, thesis show is a great example of like looking, talking to these like different viewers from who just walked up from the street to like curators or people who is highly educated in art and like and different different ethnicity too like asian people looking at it and white people looking at it and there was all like interesting point of view and it helps me uh, to talk about my next work too you know like um what i can utilize more what i should take out more and things like that give me a good uh sense of that and so what, what do you have planned post-MFA? Post-MFA, well, I'm looking forward to working at the art department at Hunter College. I'm teaching a little bit, like portfolio, summer camps and things like that for students who want to apply to art school in the future. And teaching is a big part of my life too, which I want to pursue further meeting this kind of diverse group of students gives me a fresh perspective too, like how the times are changing, how the people are changing. And we talked about it over the lunch a little bit, but America wants everyone to be same. I think that's like too, like they want them to be, they think the equal means the same and that's just easier for them. If you treat everyone the same way, it'll be fine. But everyone goes through, every culture goes through a different uh, different evolution and they're in a different stages of life. And teaching these young students really gives me a good perspective of well the cultures are at, well, at the moment yeah. and how much they're understanding. Yeah. Um, and how everyone's different, yes, right? Yes, yeah. Yeah, so teaching, I'm looking forward to do more in the future. And yeah, settling into my little studio in Bushwick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As you're talking about, as times are changing, are there, is the program admitting more Asian students, you think? Oh, the- I mean, it's more of my personal, personal experience because I spent my um, childhood in Korea too and then I saw how it was and I was at one point this kind of like clueless um, helpless Bobby girl too (laughs) and um, we all started out somewhere (laughs) right yeah and it just gives me a time to look back on what I went through because I feel like 
as I'm like at Hunter and other places teaching, it uh, shows me that different countries, like different cultures go through different, different times. Like in, in early 2000, there were so much, so many Korean students in art schools. Why was that? And um, I personally think it's because of this kind of like post-war culture. Like our parents' generation was a post-war generation and Korea found this independence in 1955. And from that point on, that that's the beginning of the contemporary world for right. Korea. Before that was um, Japanese invasion. And before that was when we had this like kings and palaces and right. you know it's completely different life right and Farm, farmlands yes yeah. and 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 they had this kind of like class structure hierarchy structure right. and 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 then suddenly in the 50s we're put in this like, contemporary life and everyone was trying to find their position and my parents generation went through all this growth because korea became like third world country to first world in like less than a century right which is insane to it's think of insane that. yes and, and i think I think there are a lot of catch-ups to do, like mm. in their, I don't know what would be the right word to say, but um, when I was growing up, if you could afford to, you're getting out of Korea because our parents' generation was doubtful about Korean society, that they went through, mm. they went through shit yeah. and now it's a good life and they don't want to look back. They want to look forward. They right. want their kids to have a good life. So they were just sending them off to America. I mm. think at some point I saw statistics like every summer, 200 Korean kids would leave Korea every day. Even now? No, oh, no. When I was in, maybe when I was 13, 14, okay. that would be like early 2000. Wow. Yeah. And globally, millennials are blamed to be a failure. Yeah. And in Korea too, because I think to educate your kid, underaged kid in America in a boarding school with a guardian and all the living expenses costed up to like 100,000 a year. Mm -hmm. And that's more than what most people make a right. year. And when all these kids came back to Korea without like an Ivy League title, they didn't make $100,000 a year yeah. and they were barely able to get a job right. because they were viewed as this kind of like um, spoiled kid with a rich parents mm -hmm. who didn't want to go through like hard academic system in Korea. So they escaped to America, found the easy way. And I spent all the money and came back to Korea. So there are all these people who went to still good university, but not recognizing Korea right. and not being able to get jobs that, that's worth their education. And um, so now not a lot of people come to America from Korea. Really? Yeah. Only the very invested comes mm. to America. And now they realize Korea is actually a pretty good place to live in. And mm. it's a pretty good place to go to school and right. good benefits. Um, the cost of uh, education is very low. And, and so only the very invested in studying in America comes to America mm. or like with very specific purpose. Um, now it's a Chinese time. Mm -hmm. I see art schools filled with Chinese kids and all these Chinese kids with money come to America yeah. and try to go to art school here. And and I, I see a lot of um, same culture that happened with when Korean flushed into like flooded into America. Right. right. Um, so. I'm learning more about these kind of things as an Asian person too, like where we come from, how much we learned and how we changed and how right. we absorb this kind of Western culture. 
and how we settle it down here. And I'm generalizing a lot by like talk when I'm talking about these different dynamics, but but it when um, when I'm teaching, it's really easy to see what kind of people are here, and especially because I'm teaching a lot of international students. Their interest is very different. For example, if you come from China, they don't want to go to uh, if they're studying fashion, they don't want to go to FIT, but want to go to Parsons. Oh, I didn't know that distinction. Yeah, um, yeah, because Parsons is a private school and FIT is a state school. Oh. They want a fancy title right. than a state school title. Okay. That doesn't mean that Parsons is much better school or right, anything. Right. Yeah. That same thing happens in Korean in 2000s. They were mm. all going to Parsons, not FIT. Hmm. And um, I did not know that. Yeah, it's very interesting to see what matters to them and what doesn't. Yeah. And it's a learning curve for everyone. And and they'll soon learn that that doesn't really matter, or or maybe not. Um, yeah, but it's hard. It's always hard to tell. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I see I see a lot of that kind of movements. Like, and as more artists, designer, and any kind of creative come to come to the U.S. from outside, I think they're all trying to find their identity. All try to. Find where they can stand on um, whether they know or not. You know, they're all trying to fit in. So it's really interesting for me to see like how they struggle. All right. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. You notice those trends in New York. I don't think that trend has reached Pittsburgh yet. No, I'm very. Uh, also, I'm very. I was very specific about those fashion schools because it's more apparent there. Yeah. Yeah. Also, because when I taught last year as an adjunct, mm-hmm. I got mostly Korean students. Really? Yeah, mostly. Well, mostly Korean women. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and then in the grad program too, like if there was an Asian person, usually it'd be a Korean mm-hmm. MFA student. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you'll probably see slow that slowly changing too. Yeah. But uh, I, as I'm saying, the invested Koreans still come. Yeah. Still, America is still viewed as forefront of contemporary art, and people want to be here, or people want to get a sense of how it is here. Get a degree and, here. Yeah, and then I think I think depends on what kind of work you're making, but I think artists should venture out of their comfort zone a little bit too. You know, because when I see how people read paintings in Korea or in China or here is a little different. And if you want to be more global, international artist, I think it's important to see how people talk about it right. outside of your world. Isn't that a little messed up? Because basically you have to be westernized to become yeah, international. Exactly. exactly. Right? And yeah, that's that's a reality, I guess, yeah. uh, at the moment. But that's how I found Tansekwa too. Like I... I felt like, and I didn't want to make oriental painting. That's not my my thing. And it kind of seemed like if you want to have like an identity, then you need to be like using more ethnic material. Yeah, whatever that means. Cool. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know what that means sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but Eth- um, yeah, ethnic material, ethnic foods. Like, yeah. <laughs> so everything else that's not white is ethnic, right? You know. <laughs> I know. Yeah. So. But I think it's still important if they're 
pursuing to make paintings on canvas, which is not theirs to begin with, mm -hmm. then it's important to understand what you can talk about in that medium and how you can talk about it in the medium. And mm -hmm. I don't think you can do that without really knowing what's out there in the world or right. how people look at it and talk about it mm -hmm. in the rest of the world. And I I believe everything will be, everyone will be mixed at the at some point. You know? yeah, yeah, we'll just see how long it takes. Yeah. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. I think what they say the future is brown, but it's taking a while. Yeah. Um, also, like, when I meet, especially young Asian students, they have a lot of questions. And I think it's important to talk to them honestly about, like, my experience and how how I navigated through the American or Western art world. Right, right. Um, yeah, what, what, would, what would be your advice to, to a person from Asia coming over to America and suddenly having all of these new social cues? New social cues. It's really hard. It's really hard. Some people are better at it than the others, but... I think the first, the most thing that I talk to my Asian students about is don't be afraid to talk. Also, a lot of times it's about English. And like the, also, it's oftentimes English, but what matters is an attitude of how you present yourself and how you present your idea. You don't have to be fully fluent in English to be able to do that. And um, you need just the confidence of a white man. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, I was talking about. Have you seen those like videos of walking like white men? No, no? <laughs> I gotta look that up. Yeah, I I can't find the original one, but there is versions of it. Uh -huh. um, but there is this like uh, I, sh I think she was Chinese or Taiwanese, um, but this Asian girl who was like walking around the city with a camera and just walking straight into people. Uh -huh. And I get that all the time in New York City too. I am the one who's navigating through the traffic, but if I decide to just walk straight and have people run into me, it's always my fault. Of course. Yeah, even even though it's them who was like looking at their phone or yeah, like yeah. taking photos of the buildings and things mm -hmm. like that. It's always my fault for not looking out for them. Right. So, yeah, and then there's like these versions of videos like um of like uh, women doing it, women of color doing <laughs> it or <laughs> guys pretending to be a girl and having this like uh, yeah, parody yeah. of it. <laughs> and, yeah, 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 it's, it's funny to see. But yeah, having this kind of attitude and that's what matters in the western culture, like how you hold yourself. Yeah. And that no they need to truly understand like no opinion is small. And they also, what I say the most is as a minority, when they, when, when you're living in homogenous country, homogenous um, ethnicity, a country with homogenous ethnicity, it's hard to disregard the, uh, it's, the uh, it's easy to disregard that you're, you're Korean or Chinese or, cause it doesn't matter. Everyone's the same. Everyone's right. Korean, everyone's Chinese, everyone's Japanese. Yeah. And you don't really think about that. But the moment you're here, you represent the rest of the race. Yeah. Yeah. And whatever you do represent rest of, or how represent the uh, rest of the race right. would react, you know? Right. So that's with every minority. Group. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I talked to him about that too. Like how you act is basically going to be how your people is going to be viewed. Right. As. Or how Asians will be viewed. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and we need to constantly work to break that stereotype sometimes because it's easy to get boxed into this kind of stereotypes of quiet, timid. Yeah, um, yeah just breaking the ice. And, but I think you need to work harder to portray yourself as, course, a, yeah. Yeah, as a certain person yeah. um, than when you're in your country of your own people. Right, right, right. Overcompensates. Yeah, for sure. Did you have any experiences like that? Uh, I, I feel like you re- navigate really well. Well, among like I think, I think part of that was me growing up in New Hampshire, which was very white, and right. then also, I think I was having that. I think I switched back and forth, right? Because I grew up in New Hampshire, and I think I learned how to navigate being in a white group and mm-hmm. then i remember when i went to undergrad which has which you know Cornell had a huge asian population yes. i t- in a sense relearn the codes right. of specifically I think asian that happens for a lot of people in college yeah but yeah. specifically like asian americans not asians right because mm-hmm. most of the people i hung out with asian americans mm-hmm. they weren't like the favi asians right and then most most of the asians from you know who weren't from america they hung out with themselves just right, like how yeah. People always self-segregate. And then I think when I went back to grad school, I think I was more interested in, I think I the first two years is more interested in becoming a better artist. I was, I think, kind of like how you were mm-hmm. trying to find your voice. Mm-hmm. I was trying to find my voice and I was not, I think I was code switching back to being able to exist in a largely white framework. Mm-hmm. But I think at some point as my the work became more specific and also I, I got more comfortable, I guess, manipulating and choosing and mal- being malleable with how I approach my identity in a way that mm-hmm. wasn't like you like how all your professors saying, like find that ethnic or identity right. in, in a very superficial way. Mm-hmm. And as, as I got more comfortable at approaching it, hopefully in a more complicated way mm-hmm. that... I started getting tired of having to code switch Mm. and act and, you know, be constantly surrounded by so, so many white people. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, like, I think I do, I think, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, maybe it's also a self-perception because I definitely Mm -hmm. work, like I felt like for me, it was very important to learn how to write well. Mm -hmm. You know, I felt like it was very important to learn how to articulate myself well because I felt like, that was the one place that I had to overcompensate right. as a you know non-white person. Whereas I'm sure you experienced a lot of Hunter, where like you'd have these. I've noticed the most with white male artists, where they did the least amount of work but would talk the loudest right. in, the, in, in the critique, <laughs> yes. and then like the teachers were never aware enough to like realize that they didn't do any work. But all this, all the students, all the peers were like, "Yeah, we know you didn't do any of that work," right. you know, but. <laughs> but yeah, and then it always gets awkward. Like, like, do you want to be the person to call out this white person's bullshit? Uh-huh. You know, and then you're surrounded by white faculty who all buy that bullshit. Mm-hmm. You know, and so, you know, seeing that and knowing that, I felt it was important to be able to articulate myself and continue to practice to learn how to articulate myself, mm-hmm. uh, both in writing and in critique, discussion-based yeah. scenarios, so that. At least I have control over that. Right, right. Yeah, I totally get that. If you think about it, like now there are more, but 
in in art department there's always a lot of asian students but in our history department there are rarely asian yeah. person there yeah yeah, yeah. And I think like how to articulate yourself and having the ability to write about your ideas and talk about your ideas is very important. Yeah. It really happened for me when I moved to New York. I was still kind of like figuring myself out. Like, am I an Asian or Korean, Korean American, Korean international? Yeah. And until like I really got to New York City where I realized it didn't really matter. I mean, it's New York City is filled with stereotypes. But at the same time, I felt the freest there because mm. in New York, it doesn't, the context of yourself doesn't really matter. Like you're just you and um, you're, you're, the, you're just the person that you're representing. But, and sometimes when I, up until college, I felt like to the white, some white people, I need to hide some Asian aspects of me mm. to be viewed as a certain person or things like that. Mm -hmm. But in New York, I learned these people are a lot more knowledgeable in different culture and in a way they accept the differences. Right. I could just be like, I'm Korean. I do things this way. I'm fine that way. Yeah. And yeah. they will be okay with it yeah, for the first time. Because they've hopefully seen such at a least wide... they think like they need to be multicultural. Yeah, yeah, they think, they think, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They got to feel good the about... The world is perfect. They got to feel comfortable yeah. about their uh, whiteness. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, yeah, bringing, bringing... I used to hate bringing white people to Korean restaurants. Oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they order some dolsat bimimbap. Yeah. <laughs> Can I have one yeah. of those? Yeah, and then having to like explain everything. But then when I got to New York, it's superficial, but at least people like acted like they're interested in and they know a little bit. And, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, so I was like, okay, like I, maybe I can do this a little bit more. So I got much more comfortable with it. But yeah, uh, um, I first moved from when I moved from Korea to the United States, I was in California Bay Area. Uh -huh. And and there, there are a lot of population are segregated. Like, um, like you were saying, like a lot of Asian Americans are Asian Amer uh, with Asian Americans, and uh, people who recently came from Asia were hanging out with them. And it wasn't just for Asian, but all the other other ethnicities. But they just naturally found their circles. And and when I went there, and I also uh, went to public high school where every other kids went to school since they're like together since they were like five. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it was very hard for me to break into that community because everyone had known each other for like 10 years already. Right. And um, I'm just like new kid who was from Korea. And then I hung out with kids uh, who were from Asia. And that was kind of like my comfort zone. And then when I came to, when I went to Cornell, I was terrified of this, like going to East Coast, like private school. Hmm. And even the Korean kids were a little different there. A lot of like Korean kids. Uh, from, from New Jersey. And yeah, New yeah. Yeah. And then, and then I was looking at these Korean kids from Korea too, which I was uh, re more relating myself with. Um, but they were all like these kind of like boarding school, private school yeah. kids and yeah. very different culture from what I was coming from. Yeah. And I was terrified, but then they all thought I was cool kid because I was Why? from California. Were there no, there was not, not many? a lot of Cal, like really? there are some California, uh, from people from California, but most they in Cornell, in my, 
uh, I met more people from like New England right. or like East Coast mm. and like New Jersey right, and right. Um, or like boarding school and things huh. like that. So they were like, oh, you're from this like California yeah. on the sunshine and like, yeah. So so I acted like the cool kid, Americanized <laughs> kid. <laughs> and then slowly I became more Americanized. Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. Then, and then I never wanted to go back and I wanted I I don't know what I was thinking but that was the only thing I wanted to do go to New York City after I finished school and Mm -hmm. so I did and I don't think I can do something like that now I think I'm too old to be that that's how I feel that's how I feel Yeah. <laughs> but at the time I had no plans, no money. And I don't know why my parents agreed, but they were like, okay, we'll like support you for until you find the job, you'll, you can move to New York City. So I came, I went to New York like without a plan and started picking up on these different jobs. And, uh, but now it feels, uh, it feels like home yeah. to me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um. All right. Yeah. Thanks for talking with yeah, me. Yeah, this Eugene. has been a lot of fun. Yeah, you enjoyed it? <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Where mm-hmm. can people find you online? Uh, uh, my website is www.eugenasong.com. It's E-U-G-I-N-A and song like you sing a song. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm on Instagram, eugena.song. Yeah. All right, cool. All right. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Eugenia. Thank you. Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Ziyuan Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website, www.seeingcolorpod.com, or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, under the handle Seeing Color Pod. If you enjoyed this show, please go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and provides greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.